from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello again, I'm your host, Chris Pace. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers, as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts come in two flavors, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types, or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And this episode is one of those. Now, if you have a problem, and if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire my cyber A-team. Only kidding. They're actually contractually <laughs> not allowed. Hello to Max Vetter, Paul Bentham, and Kev Breen. Hi, hello. 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 Okay, we are going to start in the world of Apple, which I know nothing about, apart from the fact that I have a MacBook. So I suppose I should know about it. But I don't think I'm an Apple person. Does anyone else on the podcast think they're an Apple person? I'm the opposite of. I'm so anti-Apple that, but I do have a MacBook. I was converted. I, I also have a MacBook. Yeah. Yeah. So. See, I feel like I'm like you. I have a MacBook for the sole purpose of recording this because it's the only <laughs> thing the uh, deck will plug into. Kev, what is your daily runner? Your your laptop? What do you have on it? Dare we ask? Da- daily driver. Uh, daily driver is Linux. That's my day to day. What a nerd. <laughs> I do have a mini rant about Apple. Shockingly, Paul has a rant. Is this the time? I suppose you could edit it out. The reason why I don't like Apple... Sorry, just to remind <laughs> folks, uh, we'll get to cyber stuff shortly. Well, the thing is, you say the episodes come in two flavours, rants and like stuff that we care about. <laughs> I prefer the rant ones. And we did a rant episode last week, and I'm really trying desperately because I haven't done any revision on this week's topics. So I thought maybe if I did a rant, well, at least I could have a contribution early on in the podcast that you may or may not edit out. And then I'll feel like I've contributed and I can just have a beer for the rest of the week. <laughs> so my Apple rant, right, this is the reason why I don't like Apple. It goes back a long, long way. So I don't know when the first iPod thing. Does anyone remember the first iPods? Oh, gosh, that's like early 2000s. The iPod. They had hard drives, yeah. right? 2000, yeah, 2004. Yeah, like kids, kids, like yeah. hard drives, you know, clicky hard drives. Like you can listen to it. You, you yeah. can work. It worked. And, and when you turn it, it had like you could feel that it was moving. A gyroscope, and they didn't last very long because as soon as you dropped it, the heads crashed into the platters, and boom, data lost. Anyway, didn't get that problem with a Walkman, did you? Well, yeah, but then the tape got wrapped right around the heads, didn't it? And that's a whole different problem. Yeah, to get a pencil out. If you've never used a pencil to wind back in a tape, <laughs> you haven't. Lived. There's a load of people listening who are like, "What is a tape?" Anyway, you had to when, when you first got an app, uh, iPod. You the music that you bought and paid for would only work on an Apple device, because it was locked in with uh, DRM. Which is ridiculous. Like, I paid for that song. If I bought it on cassette or I bought it on CD, I could play it on any cassette player or any CD player. If I bought it in a digital format, I could only play it on my Apple device. That is bad and wrong. But that's only if you bought it from Apple, right? No. I think you, if you, any songs through um, Apple Music or whatever it was called back then. Yeah, through, through Apple Music. But, but if you bought MP3s. But that was the only way other... you could get songs on there because you had to like mm. wipe it and treat it like a different thing. Anyway, that's why I hate Apple. And I have never bought an iPhone. I got songs from lots of other places. <laughs> yes, but that's dodgy. This is quite a good lead into um, this story because this story is about Apple's ecosystem and Apple's uh, gatekeeper. Uh, security feature. So 
essentially what happened was Apple accidentally approved one of actually the most common Mac malware threats that there is um, as part of its security notarization process. So the Apple Notary Service is an automated system on recent versions of macOS that basically scans software, everything from apps to kernel extensions, disk images, installers, we'll, you know, we're all Mac users, we've always seen that little pop-up that lets us know that this thing, you know, could, might be, or is bad, um, and lets us know if there's malicious code before we open it. But it turns out, uh, recently it was discovered that Apple had inadvertently notarized malicious payloads that were utilized by, uh, uh, like a, uh, malvertising i think it's called uh campaign um and yes it turned out that loads of people get infected with schleyer i just think i quite i would i have to say the one thing i do like about apple is that the, this idea of a protected they're all about privacy they're all about data security um and so it's kind of a story when something gets through whereas in google you like whatever the play store you're like yeah there's malware in it like that's but the, but google users live on the like the, the, you know the dark side of the tracks we like like to take risk we're a bit edgier <laughs> all these apple people like in these kind of padded environments like the tree ball mintad bed that's another 80s reference for you just drifting around in this kind of soft mr soft like kind of world that's what apple users are as the number of apps being developed um like traditionally they only gatekeeped uh stuff for mobile devices so uh, stuff you could install on your mac was a lot more free range and then they started to bring the same technology into place but the number of apps being developed you can't expect to be able to keep on top of it so we're seeing more and more whereas like go back a few years you 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 used to be able to say like getting malware into the apple store would be now and impossible now it's happening much more frequently because there's so many apps being developed so many updates coming through uh, that you have to only rely on automation. You can't put humans in the mix anymore, and stuff's going to get passed. Well, there's something else at play here, though, surely, because I know that the way that it's done is to do with, like, certificates and, and stuff, and I get all that. Um, but what I don't understand is that the threat that got through, which is Schleyer, which I'm going to just... I'm basically, I'm just going to keep saying <laughs> any opportunity I get to say it, I'm going to say it. Um, but Schleyer is a very well-known and is, I think, according to um, Kaspersky, it's like the, basically the number one Mac malware threat there is. So you're telling me that during this whole process, Apple didn't think it was a good idea to maybe run those files through a single antivirus you know software. but there's loads of things you can do so malvertising is a really interesting thing that they've, they've added on there so what they used to do with malvertising is they used to build a real advert like a genuine advert and they'd submit it to to google and say this is my advert and google would run like thousands of checks it's a real advert great launch it then what they did is they had some little mechanism inside that switched the code after it had gone live. Uh, yeah. So you review a perfectly legitimate application, and then after it's gone, this one line of code that would be so easy to miss that isn't malicious uh, just goes, hey, switch out the payload for something malicious, please. Great, now we're live with malware. I mean, your Kaspersky's and your Sophos's must be loving this because they love banging on about how um everyone needs to have antivirus on their uh on their mac which of course i'm sure we do um but this is just a perfect indication of how even with a even with a closed ecosystem like this you know a system for approval and scanning of um you know scanning of the files themselves you cannot beat 
having active antivirus as a layer on the endpoint, can you? Well, really? this is this is where heuristics come into play. And if you're an organisation running stuff like this, uh, then monitoring the behaviour of the asset. So uh, when that file that you open, that application suddenly connects out to a random EC2 IP address or a RU or... Uh, Russian domain name, that's when you go, hey, like the file might be legitimate, but something suspicious is happening on that device. And that's your defense in depth. Paul always wants to talk about how, you know, oh, anyone who got infected with anything on their mobile was obviously sideloading apps and all this stuff. And actually, it turns out that we are seeing more and more, just because I think there's more and more applications and exactly the challenges you were talking about, Kev, we are seeing more and more bad stuff sneaking into into kind of approved ecosystems. And I wonder what we as end users can really do about that. Like, how will I ever know that the thing that I'm downloading onto my device to do a particular job is not doing something malicious if it's in the app store and has been approved? I think one of my big issues with this whole app store, like safety environment, like sanitized environment, is there are broadly speaking, to my mind, two approaches. You have the everything in the store is completely 100% safe totally it's sanitized it's gone through all the checks you can trust this environment which means me as the end user doesn't matter how stupid i am or how like like just random i press buttons i push a button it downloads the app i know that that app's safe that model um actually has a load of secondary failures with it because of course a lot of apps then have payment things in it and with the stories going through um through your uh, through your eyeballs on people who've been charged thousands thousands of pounds because they downloaded an app and they didn't realize that the kid was going to buy loads of like stuff in it right this hasn't happened to me yet um although i was worried the other day (laughs) yeah Or the other type of approach is where you have to put some responsibility onto the end user. Google have gone to a kind of mid-ground on this, but I do believe Google, this is how I used to treat or felt about Google. With Google, you would download, you'd look in the app store and you'd look at the app and you go, is this a good app or a bad app? Right, I, I like I'm going to download Facebook because it's made by Facebook and it has 10 million, 10 billion downloads and it's got lots of ratings. Or I'm going to download Facebook, which has got 10 downloads and is made by some sort of dodgy author. In- uh, to get their apps bumped up the Play Store list, uh, there are mobile click farms uh, where these thousands of real mobile phones on shelves and someone just walks around and goes click install click install click install mm. five star five star five star but yeah but i kind of guess I, and i do accept that that's kind of the reality and i think google then switch to sort of post event like checking of apps and then they automatically delete them from your phone if they're dodge etc i kind of guess my point i suppose where i was going with this though is that i would prefer this is kind of my view that the app store kind of ecosystem would educate the users encourage the users to take personal responsibility rather than saying this is totally safe because in that situation then at least the users are applying some hopefully um, intelligence before they download uh, an app and whilst what you're basically saying is yes and that can still be flawed i completely agree but if the users are never exposed and um, i was watching this documentary about the social thing this week on netflix which we're not talking about but one of the things i did like about that was talking about these kind of uh, generation z 
um car- uh, uh, well generation z who they don't take risks anymore like it's part of the kind of culture of this latest generation and they're not exposed to any dangers and therefore they don't and they don't like taking risks and i kind of sort of feel that applies to app store ecosystems and i might have stretched this a little bit but my my feeling is that there can be dodgy software you have to be intelligent about how you use software how whether it's paying downloading malware clicking on links I think the industry has a responsibility to upskill its end users uh, so that they are more cognizant uh, before they do something on their device or with their own personal data or with their money. The only way to really create that kind of environment is for the... They're not the manufacturers, are they? But, you know, the gatekeepers of that ecosystem to be the ones who take responsibility for that education. And I think we're still in a place where if you think about something like app permissions, which is ultimately what is required in order for a a malicious mobile application to really work. I still think a lot of people who use, for example, Android devices with Google Play don't actually really know what they're giving that application permission to do and i think until that work happens and of course the problem is now we're in a fight between usability privacy and security like once i make it once i make the bar higher for a user to approve an application to be used i risk harming usability and then i risk hurting the number of downloads for that application or people using my phone so apple has gone down the road of people don't care you know, we, we're all in security, right? A lot of people just don't, they're like, let me play on the, the game, let me phone someone, let me WhatsApp and Instagram. They don't care about security at all. And I think Apple, I, I you know, they've definitely gone, we, we're, we're going to talk to the people who don't care because they don't actually want to do more things with like, like Google. Uh, people might want in the APKs on the Google store or whatever. We, we just want it easy secure and you just install it and you, you don't have to worry about it and i think there is a lot very large market for that as well moving into more familiar territory now security researchers have revealed how the cryptographic authentication scheme in NetLogon, stay with us listeners can be exploited to take control of a windows domain controller the last bit i got um this is now becoming quite familiar it's another perfect 10 that is going to regularly feature now, every time. <laughs> no expense spared. No, yeah, guys, come on, we're not messing around now. Um, a perfect 10 for CVS. At, I was wondering whether Kev was just going to keep doing it every time I said perfect 10. <laughs> just keep saying perfect 10. It's, oh, it's for goodness 10. sake, Kev. <laughs> I have to reach Sorry, over he, to press the button. Kev, had li- you had literally one job. You're not yeah, a musician, are you, Kev? No. Uh, so yeah, pressing buttons is hard. It's Top received timing. a perfect ten, um, the maximum <laughs> score, um, and this was patched by Microsoft in the August Patch Tuesday round of updates. So, Kev, please tell us. Actually, maybe start with the what is a cryptographic authentication scheme, and then we can understand what zero logon, which is the name of the uh, the name of the threat, what it actually does. It's quite a good name. We haven't covered the name score yet. I mean, that should be important. Oh, we didn't actually. We didn't get. We didn't go with with uh, for Schleyer. What were we going to give Schleyer? Oh, Schleyer's an eight, mm. especially when you pronounce it. Schleyer. It's up there, quite like it? Schleyer. Schleyer. <laughs> Schleyer. 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 Penny. Penny. Sean Connery for that. 
So zero logon, what do we think? Well, I thought it was better, but it, against Schleyer, it's no good. Six. Zero logon is highly relevant, though. Oh, uh, the go. name matches. Oh, look at you. The... Oh, it's very descriptive. <laughs> In the third line of code. It's boring. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'll grant you it's boring, but it's accurate. Great trailer, by the way, Kev. Like, people are definitely going to listen to the rest of this podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm actually not going to get into the crypto because that is definitely boring. Um, you don't understand it, do you? Uh, well, yeah, it's a node by IV, and you can control oh, the cipher text. So, like, it, uh, <laughs> see, you regret that name. <laughs> you, you, you had to go there, boy. You had to check. Uh, so you had to check. The crypto is sound. Microsoft's implementation of the crypto is flawed, uh, and basically, what it means is that if uh, I'm an attacker on your network, uh, I can send some packets to your domain controller, which controls all of your accounts, and say, "Set your password to." To zero for me, please. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let me just log in now without a password. Thank you very much. Now let me just dump the passwords and hashes for every single user on your domain. Thank you very much. I'm now just going to put your original password back and I'm out of here. Mm. And that whole process takes less than 10 seconds. Now, I don't want to feel like I'm asking an obvious question, but I'm going to ask an obvious question. <laughs> um, I'm So you said that you have to have you have to be on the same network. So like logistically, it feels like sort of back in the day that would not have been as challenging a thing, but now surely there are things to prevent people just hopping onto your network and sitting there. There absolutely are. There are things like F5 big IP devices. They've never been compromised. <laughs> there are, there are <laughs> to sell VPN devices. Oh, dear. And, yeah, that's great. Yeah, VPN devices, they've never been compromised. There are Windows laptops, and they've never been compromised to deliver ransomware inside an estate at scale. So, yeah, no, you're right. Getting onto a network is incredibly easy for an attacker. Like sarcastic, Kev. Where's he been all these podcasts? Did say I thought it was a stupid question. All right, just asking. Wow. Actually, getting uh, into this state uh, isn't as difficult, and that's where we're going to see this. It's not going to be used by uh, like just script kiddies attacking stuff. Like you have to be on the network. So it's going to be used by people who've already gained a foothold. They're planning on dropping ransomware. This will allow them to target every single machine. Uh, and install ransomware. Ooh, You're basically yeah. saying it's the ultimate privileged esca- privilege escalation, isn't it? Yeah, and it gets worse. Uh, Will Dorman, who was looking at this the other day, uh, decided to take a look at Samba. So Samba is the Linux equivalent of the SMB protocol. And because it has to work with Microsoft, it has the same flawed implementation. So now it's the same exploit code works on Windows and Linux. It's cross-platform. So, it's cross-platform. It's great. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's pretty big. Uh, like you said, so Microsoft released the patches on the 11th of August. I think the write-ups came out three days afterwards. Like, a POC code was available the following day. So are we kind of in... It feels like you're saying we're in the window of exploitation... Like now? Uh, now is where, if it's going to be used by attackers, it's going to get picked up pretty quickly. Um, and then we'll see it used by Red Team's internal pen tests for decades to come. Um, and people who don't patch. Like, this this thing's going to be hanging around. It's, it's pretty much every domain controller in existence that isn't patched before 
August 11th of this year is vulnerable. Like, it's far and wide-reaching. I think what you're saying is it's about to become a ubiquitous threat. Uh, yeah, it will be. It's going to be like the de facto, once you've compromised the network, this is the thing you're going to run first as an attacker to to try and get access. Uh, and once you can, like this opens every door to the entire kingdom when you do. Uh, fortunately, uh, it is relatively easy to detect if this thing's uh, happened. So if you've got pr- protective monitoring in place, you can put stuff around that. What are the indications that it's happened? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. So one is looking for the network request. Basically, the way it works is there's a one in 256 chance. So you're just sending lots of stuff. Uh, so looking for hosts talking in this way, uh, there'll be snort rules uh, looking for this behavior. Um, because of the way the packets are constructed with these null bytes for the IV, uh, you can signature those and, and look for that kind of behavior. But then monitoring. So you should be looking for like accounts being created, accounts being used. Um, so watching the change uh, of this is, is going to be big. Uh, the interesting, uh, arguably interesting side effect, the way Microsoft patched this, uh, is to put some enforcement in place um, that adds more security. They've said that in February 21, they're going to release further mitigations that is going to break a lot of third-party Microsoft domain controller implementations. So you can secure your domain controller, but it won't be a domain controller anymore. <laughs> well, I think what they're actually saying is the whole implementation is fundamentally flawed. So now, surely there's now an arms race to find out the exploits to whatever it is that Microsoft can't just patch. I think, I think it's just enforcement. Uh, these There are mitigations that have been in place. I think they're turning them on by default whilst they're still optional you can disable them um but they're going to enforce them come february so you'll it'll be impossible to turn off so they'll deprecate some things um and anything that like old ldap stuff that relies on this old format they will suddenly stop working because they're going to deprecate uh the implementation i think that's all it is when something as big as this is found were people actually looking for it or do you think there's a lot of stumbling across this uh, by accident and the reason why i ask is the uh, initial kind of bit that looks a bit dodge in the kind of handshake if you look at the protocol like you send a load of zeros in the kind of challenge handshake and you send those like 256 times on average and and then you'll find you hit one which gets a, a return um of okay and um, that seems like it was done by accident to me rather than like, ooh, this looks like a vulnerable thing. I'll, I'll try this, craft this payload. Like, what do you think happened here? Was it an accident or do you think they were like, they knew the, what the source code implementation looked like and then exploited it? It was a bit of both. Uh, they were deliberately looking at the implementation um, because it's one of those that hadn't had as much review as other places. And we've seen... Uh, uh, what was it earlier in the year? The NSA released it, uh, Curveball. Um, so that was another flawed um, uh, Microsoft implementation of crypto. Um, so people, uh, researchers are starting to look at other uh, crypto implement- implementations in other places. This specific one in NetLogon hadn't had so much coverage, so they went in deliberately to look for it, and then as part of that kind of stumbled across it. Well, well done to them. Good, good. Perfect 10. Bing! did it myself um the white papers are really good write-up as well they, they go into some good detail oh hey you know what we've forgotten to do we've it's relatively dull but <laughs> it's relatively give me my button give me my button and now a word from our sponsors thank goodness we've not had this on the podcast for a long time kev has been slaving over a hot 
AMI image. <laughs> oh, hang on. That's one of, one of those things where you say it's AMI. Hot AMI. To build you a lab for this. So you can go and play with it yourself. So if you're an immersive Labs customer, log on in and try. It'll be published by the time the podcast is out. Thanks. Goodbye. Oh, that's, that's succinct. I wish every word from our sponsors was as good as that. Okay, moving on. We have discussed on the podcast before indictments of uh, foreign nationals by uh, the, the US government, and we're going to talk about it again. There's a brilliant uh, press release that has come out from the United States Department of Justice with the headline, Seven International Cyber Defendants. I mean, I've never heard of a cyber defendant before. That's a new one on me. Including APT41 actors... APT41 actors. Is there like a play or a TV show called APT41? Uh, Charged in connection... I feel like the word threat is missing from a lot of this headline. Uh, Charged in connection with computer intrusion campaigns against more than 100 victims globally. Two defendants have actually been arrested in Malaysia, which is almost unheard of, someone actually getting arrested. And the remaining five defendants, whom allegedly boasted of their connections to the Chinese Ministry of State are fugitives i love how they call them they're fugitives in china what you mean they're people who live in china essentially um so this this is i mean chris chris i need to i need to interrupt okay i need to interrupt i can't read this article why is that this well a it is in the worst font ever the u.s department of justice need to do something like type spacing it's dreadful even the title and the subtitle are the worst title and the worst subtitle i've ever read of anything ever they're illegible and the capitalization on them is completely it's camel case it's dreadful <laughs> that is called title case except title case is not supposed to um um title words like with or in or and, and unfortunately with is but then of isn't and in anyway look we're getting to him <laughs> just to, <laughs> but, but even worse no no, no 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 you can't gloss over this Chris. zoom on your 150 that's, that's what i've done yeah I still can't read it because this isn't a Department of Justice. This there is this is full of rhetoric. Oh yeah. This isn't a this isn't an indictment. I, I was I was getting to that. I, I, Paul, I honest, but I did not expect <laughs> you to be the person that was going to start this. No, to complain about rhetoric. <laughs> no, oh, no. Sorry. I, I, please, please carry on. I'm really looking forward to you doing some what I'm now going to call from now on gov bashing so you go for it <laughs> oh no oh no i think apart from that the u.s government <laughs> down to the forest up the american Woo-hoo! exactly five eyes protocols for oh, the yeah, win about yes. yes we got we got the other names as well the other names wicked spider wicked panda barium is that wicked in a cool way or is it like uh, no. evil doers? no wicked panda well that's crowd strike isn't it wicked is pandas and spiders i think are crowd strike apt 41 will be fire i mean they're basically doing marketing for these vendors without mentioning their without mentioning their names which leads me to a whole nother question about like how much of this stuff because we're reading about, you know, their um, associations with particular threat actor groups and, and intelligence gathered and all this kind of stuff. How much of this intelligence do we think is just stuff from vendors that the that the Department of Justice and the FBI kind of buy in from, I don't know, Mandian or... or... You, missed, you missed your favourite bit, Chris, as well. Um, so these intrusions facilitated defendants, uh, other criminal schemes to uh, mine cryptocurrency, of all things. 
<laughs> the worst crime, worst crime ever. I didn't get that far down because it was too because it was too difficult to it was too difficult to read. The other thing that I hate about this headline is that it says against more than one hundred victims globally. Like what? Like it's justice, isn't it? Like the, what, surely it depends how many. Like the number of people, one or more, is still important. Like. Ah! Well, it doesn't seem a lot either for a massive hacking group. One hundred people seems pretty pretty lowball. Um, but I mean, this this is similar to APT One when it came out, and, and there was a big indictment by the FBI. Who's APT One? China. Well, and Forty One. The the first. Yeah, there's yeah different groups. They yeah don't worry. It's not very clear how they categorize them a lot of the time. Part of that indictment was you know they had the the faces up they had the pictures up the names the addresses of these five chinese guys who are part of uh 61398 pla 61398 uh and and but that was all just splash you know firstly it's kind of a yeah uh, an advert for the vendor but also it was a political thing saying oh look we we know who you are we know what you're doing we're not going to come to China and get you, but and it's, it looks like it's similar here. The one good thing about these reports, though, is that they are making more transparent the techniques used by some of these attackers. So that is the, whilst arguably they've burnt all of their infrastructure the day they released the information, uh, the fact that they are making this information more public means that smaller enterprise uh is now a, it makes it more accessible to them so they could determine whether they have been previously infected or so it would have stopped them uh, identifying uh, any future stuff yeah it, it, it's good that the cves are in there but what i but, but again there's a there, again there's another couple of there's another couple of lines in here like the actions by microsoft were a significant part of the overall effort to deny the defendants continued access to hacking infrastructure tools accounts command and control domain names in coordination with today's announcement, the FBI has also released a liaison alert system. Flash. Flash. Uh-huh. <laughs> Flash. <laughs> I'm just, I, okay, just some more really confusing grammar coming from the Justice Department. Um, report that c- contains critical, relevant technical information collected by the FBI. Now, if it had stopped there, you know, guys, that I would be happy. And Kev and I will be saying, this is great. It's access now to available to everyone um, so that, you know, people can defend themselves against it. No, 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 no. Relevant technical information collected by the FBI for use by specific private sector partners. The 100 that were impacted and nobody else. Um, so, yes, essentially, some of this seems to be political po- posturing. Um, there's another great quote in here. Um Uh, by uh, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey A. Rosen, who says the Department of Justice has used every tool available to disrupt the illegal computer intrusion and cyber attacks by these Chinese citizens. Regrettably, the Chinese Communist Party has chosen a different path (laughs) of making China safe for cyber criminals so long as they attack computers outside China and steal intellectual property helpful to China. I can't spot the theme there. (laughs) Yeah, can can you see where they're going with this? And it's amazing, yeah. It's amazing, though, isn't it? That a country, when when there are countries that are ready to poison you for making the slightest misstep, not many of them get indicted there, do they? No, it's because they're not doing anything, Chris. It's you know they're fine. Yeah. Oh, sorry, silly me. <laughs> they're fine. Yeah, they're fine. Sorry, I forget. 
not the only indictment that we have seen this week. Two hackers, Two one hackers, an Iranian... Two both alike in dignity and fair Verona <laughs> while they make their cyber attacks. No, in, in, in Iran, actually, as it, as it goes. Uh, they've been indicted for allegedly vandalizing at least 51 websites with pro-Iran sentiments. And, and uh, the, the article describes how these unsophisticated attacks were essentially a hacktivist response um, to the killing of Qasem Soleimani, which, as we all know, happened back uh, towards, the, uh, towards the beginning of the year. But what's interesting uh, about it is, again, that, I mean, the efforts that will be gone to, you know, to find somebody who essentially hacked a website to chuck up some picture on it is quite astounding. I don't know how I would feel if I was a US citizen about the dollars being invested in, you know, indicting. I forget how I, I can't remember how old he is, but it is in the it is in the article, I think 19 or something like, is it really worthwhile? I'll tell you what I really think that's kind of funny about all this stuff is that when the fact that we're talking about like 19 year olds that deface websites or these kind of these kind of like pretty low i mean these are really like low skilled low like complexity like it's always it's always an insult to put an apt name against some of them i know i'm probably crossing (laughs) both stories here but like if I'm the American Department of Justice or any country's Department of Justice and I'm like indicting people for doing these minor like graffiti type uh, crimes, wh- what's happening with all the real crime? Well, this is the other thing, of course. So you can say something is APT whatever. And then if you're looking at what is happening and it turns out that it's, you know, the less sophisticated than what some of the more um, advanced criminal groups are doing then why are you calling it apt other than to sell that intelligence to the organizations that are prepared to buy it without being too controversial i mean i guess what i'm trying to say is that the the, the department for justice are only um prosecuting those that have they've caught then there's, there's a lot that they're not catching right so like it is completely you know we know this from stolen like um, intellectual property from you know defense manufacturers and some of the stuff that happened in australia with all the copy and paste attacks etc 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 there is so much cyber crime going on that is not being um indicted that's i'd be embarrassed really like to be the department of justice caught somebody that did some website defacement yeah these are government websites uh, and he just leaves his name and his email address and his Instagram account like on the webpage. So he wasn't exactly hard to hunt him it's just down, easy, was it? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to hunt down. Like they didn't like waste man hours and thousands. Like how did they find him? Like yeah, this is my name. I did this. Like come talk to me here, kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think they would even. I don't think the Iranians would say, "Oh yeah, we've got these crack hackers going on just just changing websites." Like I think they they're better than that. And then the Instagram account then pointed people to this zoneh.org. So what is this all about? A website on which people identifying themselves as computer hackers, which would seem to me to be a fail right from the outset, post screenshots of them hacking stuff, which is... I love Zone H. Wait a minute. What is Zone H? I've just just clicked on it. It looks like I've gone back in time. 
So Zone, Zone H has been around for a while, uh, and it is it's like it's not even Web one It's like Web zero point five. It looks awful. It makes the Department for Justice website look good. <laughs> but what it is is it's a place for arguably script kiddies and like hacktivists to deface a website to come to Zone H and then basically just say here it is uh index it for me so that i can show how many of these i've done and i'm just a bit confused as to the existence of this site like what's the what's the motivation for posting up i'm so sorry, I'm i missing so i can show you how much of elite hacker i am like i'm uh... an uber elite hacker look how many websites i've defaced if you're in iran and you're hacking websites in america you have literally nothing to worry about do you you could post up your entire like hacking cv on that site and it wouldn't make a difference Okay, it's time for uh, another edition of Hackers Could as we come to the end of our time. Um, and this one's about Samsung. I'm going to do the headline. <clears throat> Samsung users need to update their smartphones now or hackers could hijack your device. So hackers could, hackers might, hackers probably won't. Hang on. I've just updated my phone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is a this is a hackers. It's a hackers. Good. The, there is a CV vulnerability uh, that affects uh, phones. Uh, it's part of the Android OS and uh, hits Samsung devices. Um, so it is accurate. Uh, I don't think I've seen it in widespread use. Um, and we we had a whole conversation earlier about. Uh, Android ecosystems, it's not, whilst there is some malware in there, it's not quite so simple to get stuff in there. So uh, maybe we won't see it uh, used as much. So as... the suggestion is that you would have to install something, an application of some kind, in order for this to work on your phone. Is that right? So this is probably going to be, uh, if I send you a specially crafted file that you open on your device, uh, that's going to trigger it. So actually... Um, we might see this become a bit more prevalent because you're not going to need to like install a malicious app into the app store. Uh, you're just going to be able to send a specially crafted payload, uh, a specially crafted file to somebody. If they open it, uh, then you're going to be able to, to exploit this. So you could send something disguised as a PDF or something like that and rely on me opening it on my phone in order to exploit it. Uh, yeah. Something along those lines. Um, like, Knowing that the vulnerability is there uh, and then exploiting it and then doing something with that is incredibly difficult, especially on mobile devices, because uh, they're a lot more protected than uh, than like mobile uh, than non-mobile devices like laptops and desktops. Uh, so I don't think it's going to be massive, uh, but it is definitely a they could. There is a thing about this though with with these um, Android updates because of course Android if you've got the uh, like a pure Android phone like a Google Pixel phone you get the security um, bulletin updates on at the start of the month so this one is Android uh, September twenty twenty um, uh, update which the Pixel phones have but my Samsung Galaxy S ten doesn't have yet. Because it's they've got to do all the testing because they've got to put all the extra bloatware nonsense on it. So actually, hackers could exploit my Samsung Galaxy S10, Chris. So maybe it is a thing. Okay, next. <clears throat> hackers could use Windows 10 themes to steal passwords. I'll confess, uh, the main thing I learned from this article was what a Windows theme is. 
because uh, I have a Mac. So I wasn't really <laughs> familiar with the I wasn't familiar with the concept, but now I am. Basically, Windows themes are a way of like changing the look of Windows so that you feel more like an individual. Um, but essentially, the article says that malicious theme packs can be used to execute a pass the hash attack, which sends passwords to a remote server. So, how likely is it that something like this will actually be exploited? Uh, the underlying kind of vulnerability that they're talking about so that whole i can get the hash from your device that's used a lot um so the idea is um i need to trick you into connecting to me uh, on something like smb so using uh, a network share if you do that windows is going to try and authenticate and the way it's going to do that is by sending me your password hash uh, and there's lots of uh, attacks that use this, uh, NTLM relay attacks. There's lots of it. Uh, we see this used in Slack. It's been in messengers. It's been in uh, browsers. It's been everywhere. So this is just another method of tricking a user uh, into exploiting this. It's a novel way of doing it. Um, it's going to be useful against... Um, like standard users, uh, they're the kind of people who are going to install themes. It's incredibly unlikely this is going to be used to target any kind of organization. Yeah, because I guess corporations will stop people downloading themes and stuff like that anyway, won't they? We'll stop them running them as part of um, local policy, whatever it's called. What's it called? Group policy. A that's group it. policy, yeah. Um, yeah, those kinds of things. And you tend to find that if you're on a corporate asset, people are less likely to even try and like customize and theme. Uh, it's very much a home user thing. All right. So unlike, un, it's a valid vector. Uh, it's an interesting one, but unlikely to see much pickup. I so it wasn't thought. too much massive fud this week. It was all pretty. It was all pretty low key. You missed one. What's that? You, hackers could impersonate Tony Abbott by stealing his passport. <laughs> oh, Tony Abbott, former Australian Prime Minister. I saw this one on Twitter. Um, this was basically. You can hack someone if you've got a picture of their boarding pass, right? Yeah, exactly. Not not the person. You know their passport. That's pretty decent. People don't realise how... So people have got... Well, people. some people haven't. Some people are still stupid. Uh, but people have got used to not posting the front and the back of their debit and credit cards. Uh, although <laughs> searching Twitter still reveals people who do. Um, it's very obvious that a credit card has sensitive information on it. It's not so obvious that a boarding pass does. Um, and for the most part... The boarding pass doesn't, but they all have this little barcode or a QR code that contains more information. Uh, and in the case of this instance and in other places, um, you can use the information from that barcode to log into the airline website as that user. So taking the name, which is on the boarding pass, the booking ID, which is in the barcode, going to Qantas Airlines and saying, uh, I want to view my booking. And it says, sure, give us your booking ID and your surname which I've just got from your Instagram. I then log in as you and uh, I can see um, your itinerary, uh, all the stuff about you. Cancel the flight, like cha- uh, change, change their seats. seats. Make them sit next to someone terrible. Uh, yeah. I've always felt that this was a weird, like airline security is just a bit weird. Like in no other situation would your booking ID and your surname 
be good enough to yeah. log into something. It's all you need to be able to to be able to check into your flight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And yet, I've spent you know probably thousands of pounds on these flights, and that's all they need. Like the whole system, it's because it's so old and it's got all the kind of travel agents and they've got like technology, the kind of travel reservation system where it's all connected. It's like properly old. Let's say so the the logins have to be, I guess, less secure, but it's awful. Part of, part of the interesting thing here is that when you actually log in, there's nothing overtly sensitive on display. What was happening in the background is. Uh, the back-end system was sending all the information, like all the passport numbers. It was sending the uh, notes that had been left by the uh, the uh, the people who were doing the bookings about like uh, special requirements. It was sending all of that data, but it wasn't rendering it. So if you looked at it, it was just like just the normal amount of stuff. You had to go deeper into it and realize that it was sending more information than it needed to. Um so yeah, that's that's that was interesting because that's where he found the phone number and the mm. passport. I'm kind of I'm kind of torn in three different directions on this topic about where, how, what I feel about it. I'm just going to lay them all out. In one part of it, I kind of feel it's utterly ridiculous that somebody should be so stupid that they would post their own card on it. Like that's my first kind of uh, thought on it. My second kind of thought on it is that. In this COVID-19 travel-restricted environment, anybody who's smug enough to be putting a freaking passport <laughs> drop boarding card showing off the fact it, that they have moved more than two so metres this, this week. This was the 21st on, of March. Hang on. Um, yeah, it was. Okay. It took six months to go through the disclosure process. It's actually a really, really funny write-up. Okay, well, uh, anyway, where he explains on, all the steps. Interrupting me mid-rant. <laughs> so, anyway, if it was smoking enough to travel, they deserves that. My third conflicted <laughs> thing about this is though that what, like, what on earth are these travel companies doing? Were they letting this kind of obvious attack vector be such a vulnerability in their whole like? operation that a there's a barcode b that barcode contains properly sensitive information and it's on a thing that you're bound to have like lying around like because i'm sure you could just wander through an airport and quickly take a photo and then be cancelling people's flights all over the place just for the lols <laughs> and nobody's going to trace that back nobody do that that is a really bad idea <laughs> uh I think this this has affected several airlines over the last four or five years. They haven't changed, have they? They're still doing the same they thing. They have, they have. You so, wrote a lab on this back in like 2017 that does the, the whole thing. We we did. You can do this exact thing. So we give you a, an Instagram photo. Yeah, you've got, to, you've got to do all this. It's really trivial to do. So what we learned was that hackers could use a boarding pass to get your passport details, your phone number, and see stuff that airline staff have written about you. And that's like, that's pretty cool. Uh, and like I said, stop posting pictures of your brand shiny new credit card on Instagram as well. <laughs> Surely people do not post. They that, do. That they absolutely true, do. Ken. I mean, boarding passes, I kind of understand because not giving away very much. But surely people are not posting pictures of credit have cards. A, that is have ridiculous. a look for the hashtag like new card, new debit card, uh, new MasterCard. You will find loads of them. See, I mean, wonder why people aren't updating their mobile phones. There's a Twitter bot uh, that does this for you. It monitors those hashtags, those tweets, and then just re, uh, retweets them. Like It's a thing people do a lot. Amazing. And on that bombshell, 
we must end if you've enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe rate and comment wherever you get your audio content and if you want to know more about immersive labs you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on twitter at immersive labs uk until next time from all of us goodbye goodbye Bye. <laughs>